Welcome to the Noteworthy USA podcast. I'm Ben Fredericks, back as your host and joined by my brother and friend, partner, Aaron Halderman. What's up, buddy? Hello, everyone. We're back. We've been pumping these shows out pretty consistently. Hopefully, you guys are enjoying Uh, So welcome to the show from Notable Capital Management, Mr. Bob Malecki. How's it going, Bob? Very good, Ben. Thank you very much. Hi, Aaron. How are you? Doing good. Doing well. All right. Well, thank you, Beth, for having me on. Um, I'm glad to uh, present as much information as I can that's of value to your listeners. Awesome, man. We're glad to have you. So uh, tell everybody just, you know, for for those that don't know the great Bob Malecki, give us some background on your experience and uh, your career in the node industry. How how did that all come to pass for you? Well, I was born in Cleveland. No, just kidding. Um, (laughs) Basically... uh, Back in 2006 or so, I uh, started my real estate investing career. Um, I was uh, running, uh, managing and running my own IT company, internet technology company, uh, with a staff of four. We did website development for small businesses in the Seattle area where I live and um, web hosting, that kind of thing. And then um, my wife and I inherited a couple hundred thousand dollars from both of our mothers passing in the same year. And uh, we're like, what are we going to do with this money? And I happened to read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Um, my father, you know, when I was a kid, my father sold he, model home real estate. So I thought, you know, real estate seems like a good place to invest money. So we ended up buying a uh, fourplex and a duplex uh, about 25 miles south of where we live here across from Seattle. And... Um, and kind of got into it that way. Um, and the good news is where we live, there is a uh, naval shipyard where there's about 11,000 employees and also a military base. So there was a good um, stable income base and we felt pretty comfortable owning rental property and, ho- and hopefully our, you know, at, in the future our, our vacancy rates wouldn't go up and they didn't. Um, so, um, I joined our local RIA group, REAPS, and started attending the presentations and, you know, seeing all these different ways of investing in real estate and, and saw a presentation from Eddie Speed um, who talked about distressed debt. And at the time, I just kind of scratched my head and didn't get it. It was like, what, what, why would anybody buy a loan that isn't performing? So I, I walked out early and, you know, didn't think much of it. And then... Uh, I don't know, maybe a year later, one of my real estate agents, uh, or also in the meantime, since then, I started getting into flipping. I learned the subject two uh, method of buying pre-foreclosure properties from distressed homeowners who didn't want to go to foreclosure. So I'd buy their, their property subject to their existing mortgage, uh, give them some money to move out, uh, take over the property. Uh, get my investor capital in, my hard money loans, whatever I needed to rehab it, and I started flipping homes that way back in 2008 or nine. Um, and then one of my real estate agents who buys mobile homes contacted me, and she she buys mobiles, puts them on on land, and brings in the infrastructure, and, and then sells them on, on on owner financing. But she found a couple in Seattle who wanted to sell the note on their mobile home that they had just sold to another couple, and um, 
I, you know, I made them an offer of, uh, the note was only $14,000, and I made them an offer, I think, of $7,500, and they accepted it. And I calculated my ROI, annualized ROI, is about a 40, 40% return. And I went, okay, I'm kind of getting this note stuff now. So, you know, at some point later, Eddie came back and did another presentation at Reaps, and I finally got it. And I, I, I went to some of his weekend events and started getting on bigger pockets and just self educating and learned about notes. And um, basically, in, um, let's see, when was that? Probably 2012, I wound down most of my IT company. Um, I was flipping homes. Um, I was starting to buy notes in my self-directed IRA. I wanted to kind of get my personal money into notes first, into distressed debt, uh, before doing any kind of partnerships or JVs or anything. So um, uh, my wife's IRA, my IRA, and another family member's IRA uh, opened up an LLC. We started buying actually rental properties in Memphis, and we were, we were owning and running those through a property management company. And when I started the, the note business, then I went to my uh, cousin and, and my wife, and I said, hey, why don't we sell these properties on a seller carryback and own the note? We get the cash flow without all the headaches. And everybody did the smackhead thing and went, yeah, good idea. So we ended up doing that. Um, and then we started buying notes in that LLC, the stress notes, and I was doing loss mitigation uh, through, um, I used FCI as our servicer. And one thing in, in, in an IRA is you really don't want to do any hands-on, uh, hands-on meaning loss mitigation. Uh, it'd be like swinging a hammer. You don't want to do your own rehabs on a house. You really don't want to do your own loss mitt. So going through a servicer or an attorney or some third party is really recommended if you're in your IRA. Um, so um, also, you know, what drove the note industry for me, too, is as I was buying, uh, I was buying a lot of REOs, post-foreclosure REOs, when I was flipping homes, and I scratched my head and went, wait a minute, what happened? How did these things get to REO? You know, how do they, why, why does a bank foreclose? And then I realized that if I started buying the asset upstream from the actual auction or post-auction, I'm going to get a better value if I have to get a property get a lower I bought it post auction. I never really went to auctions, and I really don't want to foreclose and own the property either. But it did give me the the insight that buying debt prior to foreclosure will give me more control over the asset than farther down the food chain. Um, Bob, can you talk about that a so, second? Can you talk about that a second? So, because that's interesting to me, because I um, in my other business I buy a lot of REOs. So when you we're getting those in sort of going upstream, as you say, going back to buy those those assets before they get to that point. What did that process look like? How, how did that work? Uh, in terms of buying the debt? Yeah. Like, was it, uh, were you working with local bank relationships? Was it, uh, you know, contacting large banks? How did, how did that play out? Right, yeah, there's kind of a few schools of thought on that. Um, one guru who I won't mention, but you don't want to work with him out of Texas, um, is uh, was teaching you know contacting the banks and uh, getting a hold of the asset managers, the loss mitt managers at the banks, and and developing relationships and having access to their distressed inventory, and that can work. But um, after looking at that business model, I realized. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of, you know, not really footwork, but on the phone work. And you'd have to build up a marketing team and maybe hire a VA to do the phone calls. And it's a lot of hit and miss. And then going to your local 
credit union and local uh, uh, banks that aren't the big five could work, but again, their assets are limited. They're, they don't have a lot of things that fit my wheelhouse. I had certain parameters of what I really wanted to buy, and I didn't want to buy a note on a house out in the country or, or necessarily a note on a waterfront home in Seattle that could be much more than I could I could digest at the time. So I ended up attending conferences um, like Noteworthy, like Paper Source, um, uh, all of them, and, and learning at the conferences and developing relationships with asset managers at hedge, small hedge funds. And essentially the food chain for, for my model is uh, Wall Street Bank or a bank on Wall Street will liquidate a portfolio of $100 million worth of distressed debt to a large hedge fund. They'll peel off uh, what they don't want because they have to buy the whole portfolio. So they'll sell downstream to a smaller hedge fund, a subset of that, of that tranche of notes and that's, um, that secondary hedge fund will then uh, take what, digest what they want and sell off what they don't want to investors like myself, uh, single investors. So um, the value for me is getting to know a good amount of asset managers, le- earning their trust, getting on their mailing lists, and performing on, if I make an offer, being able to perform on acquiring the asset from them and not backing out and not brokering that kind of thing. So it's essentially a relationship-based business. It's, it's, it's intimate. I mean, probably what, maybe a half a dozen to a dozen asset managers over the past 10 years I've been dealing with. Um, so having those relationships and being able to get access to the assets that are in my wheelhouse, and my wheelhouse is essentially um, – non-judicial, um, some judicial states, but not, you know, New York, New Jersey, New England, um, pretty much focused on south, the southeast, the Midwest, and what I can find on the West Coast. And my price points are between a value of the house or the note, uh, depending on, on if they're at par, would be over 100000 and probably under $400,000, you know. And those fit well for various reasons. Um, and so I've been able to kind of whittle that out in my relationships, and I created a system, um, computerized system, basically just spreadsheets and Google Docs and Zillow and all the fun stuff to help me evaluate a note and kind of pare down a, a tape or a list of assets to the assets that I'm interested in that I want to make an offer on, and then going further from there using um, BPOs and O&E title reports to validate uh, the debt on the asset. You said, well, you said a lot of things there, Bob, and I think, and thank you for kind of giving a paint by the numbers and articulating that very well. Um, you know, a couple key things I want to point out. One was, you know, yes, developing relationships, uh, but you put yourself out there. You know, you put yourself out there, you did the work to attend the events, you know, to, to do the follow-up and get the education to figure out, okay, what is the flow of these assets and, and how is that working and, and at what point are you inserting yourself, you know, into that, into that mix to be able to acquire these assets, you know. You, you hear a lot of people out there that just talk about, you know, it's relationship, 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 and while that's Yes, that's key. It's also knowledge, you know, knowledge and follow-up is the other part of that equation, you know, in addition to, to building that. And so I think that's key. The other thing you mentioned was you did it. 
you went in and did the work yourself and like, you know, got in the trenches, you know, figured out you attended some other, you know, workshops by other people, you figured out, you know, how to uh, pull some money together through the use of what's called an IRA LLC. You know, that's called a multi-member LLC for those of you that are listening. And that allows you to, you know, combine some of your retirement account money, a spouse's retirement account money, maybe even your dad's retirement account into one joint LLC. Um, that needs to be set up by an attorney. Otherwise, that would be uh, deemed a prohibited transaction. But it's a way for you to take some of the people that you trust or your own family, you know, money to, to get involved before you become a fiduciary you know, and, and raising money like Bob does with his partner, Mr. Andrews and, and the Notable Fund. And so, you know, you, you mentioned a lot of the key things to, to people to kind of bring, bring this full circle. You know, I was very similar, uh, you know, went to different events, attended different workshops. You mentioned the local RIA clubs um, and, and going that. One thing I think that I think is really interesting is the first time you didn't get it. You heard it. You heard somebody talking about discounted notes and distressed debt and you're like uh yeah that sounds nice but it, it, it's kind of the old homage of you know you don't know what you don't know and may, maybe it sounds too good to be true or we sometimes need to hear things multiple times before we're like the light bulb goes off and like yes i get it i understand it i'm gonna go do it now and so that's why you see some of these people that you may hear over and over again, at the same conferences, you know, our space isn't very big. We're all kind of talking the same stuff. But the reason we do is one, to remind ourselves, you know, what, what the heck we're doing. And two, for other people yeah. to hear it before, you know, they, they get a picture of it. So I think those are a lot of great takeaways and, and key things. So now, now that you've brought this full circle, you shared everybody where, where you got these and, you know, kind of, uh, you know, how it flowed downstream you set up your business essentially like virtually like here you are working from home and that's one of the the great things so why don't you why don't you key us in on like how you personally manage the business and i believe your partners even in another state too and kind of how you've structured yeah. that for for lifestyle and i think the reason i'm bringing this up is because this is important a lot of people have had to make a transition or they work from home because offices are closed down or maybe they've been furloughed or out of work. So I think this is creating an opportunity for uh, people as well. Yeah, thanks, Aaron. Um, I've been working self-employed since 98, 1998. So what is that, 20, 20 years or so? 08, 18, yeah, 22. Um, and even my IT company, when we started to wind down, I moved. I basically left it just, I had a, a, a one employee who, who is a, PHP programmer. He and I started working out of my garage. We closed down the office, cut down our expenses. I started working from home probably around 2010. Um, and my wife's an artist. She works from home. So for us during this COVID environment, it's not a big shock for what the way we work. It's just business as usual, except we can't go to the bank and we can't go to dinner kind of stuff. Inconvenience. Okay, fine. Um, but being able to use the internet, cell phones, yada, 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 the technology and having Zillow and having Google and Google Docs and the cloud and everything has given. And, and I got to admit, I've, I've got a little bit of bias because I've spent, you know, the first 10 years of my life in technology. So I understand it. I embraced it and I knew how to leverage it. 
But um, my actually my first fund was it, it still exists. It's Resolution Capital Management, and that is with my partner Ben Cote and Kevin Moen. Kevin was a pretty much a rock star in Eddie Speed School. He was give, given the every year gets the award for the best deal. That kind of thing. He's a brilliant guy, and and Ben is a wonderful underwriter. So. I picked partners that complemented my weaknesses, and that's really important if you're going to run your own business. I didn't like underwriting per se, and also I, I was much less conservative than my partner, Ben. He's very conservative, so we butt heads a lot on value, on should we buy this or not buy this. And I also didn't really particularly like selling or raising capital, and Kevin is really good at that. So I'm an operations guy, and I knew it. So we're able to work virtually. Um, Kevin lives in Seattle. I live in Kingston, Washington, which is a rural Seattle and lives in Daly City, California. And we just do a call twice a week. And we use, um, we use Camp for all of our project management. We use Google Docs uh, for all of our uh, asset tracking. Um, we also used um, some other software, you know, basically off-the-shelf software to facilitate our projects. We use FCI for servicing. Um, we had acquired, you know, various attorneys for various um, either foreclosures or other legal things. So working virtually from home can be done pretty easily. Um, the thing I miss is the, you know, intimate office environment. You can't just walk over to somebody's office, sit on the chair and do a bunch of what if things. So you, you lose that, that dynamic atmosphere but you gain a lot in terms of um, being able to work from home and I can walk my dog in the morning with my wife for an hour and go in the afternoon and work out. And You know, I mean, it's not a dream lifestyle. It's, I love it, but there's highs and lows. When I was flipping homes, I had some lows. I mean, there were oh, there was a time there when I was in debt and uh, couldn't see the, the light at the end of the tunnel and, you know, oh, I was just in really almost depressed and I worked my way out of that, but... You know, learning learning how to manage cash flow and learning how to manage partners and um, subcontractors, uh, both virtually and in real time, is a, is a skill you need to develop. Um, so, did uh, we, just to give you a, a little bit of background, I started Resolution Capital with my two partners in 2016. It's a five-year closed-ended fund. We've we are we're fully subscribed, um, and we're actually managing reperforming assets now in first position, and the fund is scheduled to wind down next year where we'll sell off our assets and pay back our investors or maybe see if they want to stay in the fund and keep it going depending where the economy is next year. Sure. So I, I ran that with uh, in 2018, Josh Andrews. Um, Josh is a, mostly a second position debt investor and I've met Josh, ran into him in all the different conferences. We got along really great and he had a, a business partner, Scott Ruzich, and they wanted to start a fund like I had been running for resolution. So they hired me to consult with him and help them build a, a, a PPM, you know, a business structure, advise them on everything. And so it actually took us about nine months back and forth virtually to go through all the processes. And by that time, um, they were ready to launch. Um, essentially, they had asked me if I wanted to join them as a third partner. And because the Resolution Capital Fund was stabilized and pretty much just running, not on its own, but with a lot less intensity than when we started it, I figured I had the time, so I, I agreed. And we started the Notable Capital Fund, and uh, it's, it's about 95% uh, 
junior liens that we're buying HELOCs. Uh, typically, our, our ideal uh, purchase is a second lien on a property where the first is being uh, is performing and um, being paid, and there's equity combined loan to equity value uh, above both loans. So. You know, you, you buy a loan for thirty thousand dollars. There's a hundred thousand first, but the house is worth, a, you know, two uh, hundred and fifty thousand or hundred eighty thousand. So, that's a pretty safe bet. And in this day and age, where you know most markets, just about all markets, have appreciated over the past ten years, um, it's a good. It was a good business model because borrowers have equity. Uh, they want to stay in their homes. They want to protect their equity. And here we come along and say, oh, by the way, you stopped paying on your HELOC three years ago. Um, here's, a, here's a collection notice and an intent to foreclose. Would you like to come to the table and work with us on modifying your loan? And we've had probably 80 85% success rate on loan mods or payoffs. The other good news is their first might be at 5 or 6%. Uh, annualized rate that when they bought the house you know, 10 years ago or whatever, now they can refinance out at three or four percent. So they're cashing a lot of a lot of uh, the seconds we're getting cashed out on because they just want to get rid of us, do a cash out refi, and so uh, we've been very successful in that in that um, in that fund so far. Um, and again, that's virtual. Josh lives in Austin, Texas. Scott lives in Lake Tahoe. He's currently on a project. He has a, he has another company, and he's I've been in the poor guy's been in Hawaii, stuck in Hawaii for six months on a project. I feel so sorry for him. Um, Sounds awful. And so uh, we run that virtually. Uh, we have a virtual assistant, Diane, who lives in Mossy Rock, Washington. I found her on Upwork, and she handles our back office and a lot of coordination with our attorneys on various uh, various states for foreclosures if we need to go down that road. Um, so it's worked out very well on a virtual basis as well. Uh, the third thing that I've been doing, I think since about 2018, um, I had a, I met a guy at one of the conferences of Note Investor, and he and I started talking about joint venturing. And so we did a joint venture on a note, on a note, uh, first position note in North Carolina house in North Carolina. And um, we bought the note. I can't remember the, quite the numbers. I think we paid sixty thousand for the note. The house is worth ninety at the time. Uh, we ended up buying the note, working with the borrower, getting completing loss mitigation. She came back and she's reperforming. Uh, we ended up selling, letting the note season for six months, and so we sold the note to another investor in his IRA out of Texas, and we ended up making like a hundred percent return on our investment. And so. Going through the JV process with Wayne um, gave me another business model to use. So I ended up uh, building a platform again virtually with Google Docs and Basecamp and a bunch of different, you know, off-the-shelf applications. And uh, currently, I'm operating 16 joint ventures with 16 different partners and 16 different bank accounts. And um, the, my partners are either IRA money or personal funds or their their own LLCs. But I also set up a solo 401k prior to all of this, and I'm using my solo 401k as the managing partner in the JV. So my profit split from the JV goes back in tax-free into a, a Roth component in my solo 401k. And so that's been really nice to be able to get essentially tax-free income. 
uh, from joint ventures uh, using my experience as a manager in both my self-directed IRA and with my other partners in the funds. So, Bob, congratulations and thanks for, I mean, you're doing a lot. Let me add some color commentary because I think a lot of people are always looking for, you know, how do I get started? What kind of structure? I mean, and you kind of, what I like about what you've done is, yes, you've got a lot going on, but you focus in, you know, Gary, Gary Keller's one thing, the founder of Keller Williams, right? He talks about that one thing and he got to get laser focused. And so, you know, you master one. You're like, okay, well, I'm going to do, I'm going to do it myself. All right. Then I figured out how to do it myself. The second step is, well, I'm going to go do a fund. Okay. And now I did the fund. Great. Got that. So now I got two things I've done. Now the third thing is cool. I'm going to actually consult, you know, on somebody else that's looking to do it. And then they invite you to do it. So now you got another fund. Okay. And then the fourth thing that you got is, okay, well, I'm going to try joint ventures and I'm going to do one. It's like, and now you got 16. And so, but, but you did it, you know, in a, in a linear fashion, you know, one, one by one. And, and I think, you know, um, that's important to note because a lot of people are like, well, how do I get started? And, you know, you, you work with partners and you said something key about partners is, you know, you know what you're not good at and what your weaknesses are and your partners have different strengths. You know, you don't like necessarily raising the money and you don't like the underwriting, but you're a great operator, great at organizing and managing the team. And what you've built is a virtual power team. So while, and that's what I love, <clears throat> excuse me, about the businesses, you have all these pieces that you've been able to link together. And so I think a lot of people, you know, are, they're, they're practicing and practicing and they just got to jump in the game, but they're trying to figure out, okay, well, how do I get in the game? Where do I start? Where do I raise the money? Who do I do it with? And they have all these questions and they become like these inhibiting factors that they just, they never get in the game, you know, and they, they just keep practicing until they figure it out. And so, you know, I think what we love having, uh, getting people's perspective and, and I love hearing your story is, you know, all the things that, yes, you have a lot going on and you're involved in a lot, but you set up a system and a process for one pillar. And then you go set up a system and a process to add in another pillar. You know, so it's, it's, it's sequential, uh, but not simultaneous all at once. And I think that's key to those of you that are listening to, to take some of those key things away as you're trying to figure out your structure and what you're trying to do, you know, and, and build your business. And then you mentioned the solo 401k. I think that's brilliant. It's the managing partner. You know, we won't go into that, but you should definitely research that and you can have a Roth component of that. So here Bob's building up his retirement account. I mean, there's so many like, whiz, so much wisdom and golden nuggets of, of what you're sharing. So I really appreciate that. Excuse me. Not only that, I mean, Bob, I appreciate it. Bob, how many things did did you screw up in the beginning? Yeah. Like, with, with there, with oh, there no, I did. Everything went perfectly. No problems <laughs> at all. <laughs> well, no, I mean, you know, the thing about partnerships, I, I first, I actually started a, a small 506 fund before Resolution Capital with one other partner, uh, a, a real estate agent in Seattle, and she and I got along great. She's sharp. And we were going to raise a, a million dollars and buy some flips and rentals. And we ended up figuring out we, could, we didn't get along. We had differences of opinion. And it became, you know, what do they call that? Irre irreconcilable, uh, whatever they call it, differences. So 
I ended up taking on a, a, a she exited, and I brought in another partner who was a mid-level executive at Boeing. Nice guy. He's he's done flips. He's invested. He knows what's going on. And he was and I to me having a guy at Boeing with all that Boeing money surrounding him and potential investment capital was was really attractive. So he came in as my partner, and and I would start getting emails from him, uh, time stamped at three a.m. Worried emails. You know, and what I figured out is he was scared of losing his job. He was two years from retirement at Boeing, and he just could not stand the stress of potentially getting in trouble for running this side business. So we ended up parting our ways peacefully and all that stuff, and I ran the fund by myself for the remaining year or two that we that we had it. But So partners, you know, are great, but pick them carefully and... You know, try to do some deals with them before you bring them into a business arrangement like that. I've learned that um, over time. Um, so, yeah, th- so that, that's one mistake I made. Um, let's see, flipping homes, you know, I mean, I've made a lot of mistakes there. That's the, the thing about flipping that made me crazy was you, you know, had a good control over your expenses, but you never know where 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 it's going to land in value in the future that you're 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 projecting your profits on and i've had a situation one where i bought a flip early on ended up having it as a rental for 3 years 4 years so i was trying to uh, waiting for it to reappreciate cuz i bought it in 2008 um and um i i tried to sell it couldn't get enough to even break even on it and then um finally started you know, the market started to pick up about what was it 4 or 5 years ago but um, this is a community about 13 miles south of me. Um, I noticed they were breaking ground for a brand new residential community across the street, and I know that they're going to price those brand new homes probably at par of what I'm trying to ask for my now six-year-old home. So, getting stuck in these kind of situations and not using more foresight is another mistake I made. And the other, you know, uh, uh, the, the fix for that was to stop flipping and buy notes and, and become the bank. It's more simple, it's less risk and all that good stuff. So um, I would say also for people starting out or who are trying to move out of, um, you know, an employed situation into self-employed, uh, fear, it's a four-letter word, and getting over fear, becoming fearless is something that, I've learned to do early on, and I don't, I don't know how I did it. I mean, it's just staying optimistic. My morning mantra is uh, I live every day with extreme optimism and high integrity. You know, that's the way I live my life. And the optimism, I think, helps me overcome fear. You know, I mean, I, I, there's still things that I fear in all my businesses. Oh, what's going to happen there, and will that borrower sue me, or will this happen? But I've just kind of thought, okay, it's going to work out. Things will be fine. You just need to be smart and not let fear take you down and, and make you freeze. So overcoming fear and learning how to do that in your own life is something you'll have to figure out. But it can be a real roadblocker for success. So, you know, that's another thing I, you know, starting thing I would advise. So, Bob, we're, we're kind of in weird, uh, you know, everybody, the, we're just kind of in a weird holding pattern, if you will, you know, economically and some of the stuff you know we can control other stuff apparently is out of our control uh for at least the time being what are some of the things that 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 you're doing you know either you've had to pivot in your business or that you're preparing you know for uh for future 
business with more debt that's come on or maybe something else that you've added, you know, to, to keep yourself occupied and busy while things are a little slow on the, the on the note side of things. Like, can you, can you share us what yeah. your, your insights? Yeah, I can. Um, so, you know, the, the debt, we, the distressed debt we were purchasing in our, in, in the resolution capital that I was doing in my JVs was primarily from uh, the pile of toxic assets from the 2008 uh, financial crisis, what they call the, the Great Recession. I call it the not-so-great recession. Um, and so um, those assets, that pile has been tapered down to pretty much a lot of leftovers, a lot of bottom-of-the-barrel stuff that just doesn't fit my wheelhouse or my, my even the fund's wheelhouse. Um, so, you know, it's not unexpected that would happen, and that's kind of why we made our uh, the resolution fund a five-year uh, closed-ended fund. So we, we, we just didn't think there might be longevity over time. Um and now with the COVID virus and, and, and forbearances and possible foreclosures, you know, everybody, the chatter is and the writing's on the wall that once unemployment, you know, with unemployment high and continuing high, there's going to be foreclosures down the road. and There's going to be more distressed debt coming our way probably second quarter, third quarter, second quarter of next year. And so my partners and I are looking at when to start raising capital. We don't want to raise too early and sit on people's capital. We don't want to raise too late and miss the window of opportunities. So we're working on that. But in the meantime, I'm, I kind of sat around this year going, okay, what do I want to do while I'm waiting for, for, the, for the shift in, in the economy and, and to take advantage of distressed assets again? And... Um, with all my online experience, uh, I thought, you know, doing something maybe in an online store would be great. So I started doing some research and getting on newsletters and um, looking for opportunities um, and figured out that there is um, there's a lot of there's a lot of different business models having to do with Amazon. So long story short, I ended up getting on some some website that audit broker uh, businesses that are Amazon-based businesses and online store businesses. And I found a business that was uh, 11 years old, roughly. They started it um, in the pet supply area. Um, it was run by a mother and her daughter. Her daughter was a, was a, was a show dog uh, person, and she, she had developed all these relationships with suppliers. She couldn't go out and show dogs anymore because of the virus. She had to get a full-time job, so she really couldn't run the business with her mom. And um, they had it's a complete dropshipping business, which means I don't have to buy any inventory. I just take an order from Amazon. I send that order over to ABC Pet Supplies or whatever they are in North Carolina or New York, and they ship the product directly to the buyer, and I make my margin. It seemed pretty good. I didn't have to take on inventory. There's established relationships with you know two dozen suppliers, um, the, 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 the business is cash flowing, um, about $2,500 a month net. Um, uh, and I, and they were selling the business for about $36,000 and I just went, okay, this is about a 1.5 X return on my money. I can do it from home. I'm going to need to staff up maybe with some virtual assistance and set up some operations. So bought it in June 1st, uh, I've been running it now for what, two and a half, almost three months. And um, we're cash flowing still and all that good stuff. And I'm starting to figure out my marketing and how to improve my cash flow and so forth. So I started running that business now. 
my goal is to get that uh, the operation smoothed out and the cash flow up, um, especially with Christmas coming around. That's a huge fourth quarter. It's big for all Amazon resellers, so I'm trying to gear up for that. And then um, once I have that operating, I've got a VA in the Philippines who handles some of my order processing at night while I sleep. I have a VA in India that I inherited the relationship from the seller, and he handles some of that as well. Um, and now I have a VA in Bangladesh, and she's, I, I just rehired her from another project, and she's handling my social media because I really don't grasp social media very much and Pinterest and, and you know, uh, Facebook and all that stuff. So she's good at that, so I'm paying her the whopping $5 an hour to handle that for me. And um, so, again, I've just put together a structure. For, I have a warehouse in Texas that I've contracted with to accept all my returns. They have an online system. I can then resell those on eBay, which I hired the guy in India to start doing all my ads on eBay. So basically, I'm kind of the maestro, and everybody's my orchestra. Love it. That's awesome. So uh, yeah. what, um, what, we're living in strange times, obviously. So and I want to kind of wrap it up on this question with you because I know you're going to have a whole bunch more to give when we get to you know, our virtual convention and stuff. And I want to save some for that, but what do you see happening, you know, in the near future with this business in terms of distressed debt? Obviously, uh, you know, there's going to be some opportunity and, you know, just depending upon how things shake out, but given your, you know, two decades plus experience doing this and having gone through different cycles, what do you think, it, what do you see happening down the road? Well, it, I mean, it's it's a cyclical business like real estate. Um, you know, distressed debt is a, is a byproduct essentially of a of an economic downturn like two thousand eight. So, um, we have another economic downturn, and um, it's a it's a much different animal than two thousand eight because back then, that uh, there was a lot more product on the market, meaning homes. Um, interest rates were not that low, but um, the standards by which lenders were making loans was much lower as well, and that's changed uh, as a result of 2008. Um, so the underwriting for loans is much more stringent, so you're not going to have a lot of um, uh, potentially defaulting borrowers coming along, but what you will have, uh, and that, that this is the difference, is again, unemployment, and a lot of people who had jobs, those jobs are maybe gone. You know, baggage handlers at the airport you know, that job may never return for them. Um, so there's, it's a huge dynamic shift in how our economy operates. And it's going to take, you know, many years for this to smooth out, for the employment uh, to come down to, you know, a, a reasonable rate. And so because of that, it's going to create a disruption in, in the economy and home ownership and the ability for borrowers to pay. I don't think you're going to see this massive wave of defaulted debt like we did in 08. But you will see defaulted debt. And um, you, will, you will see different dynamics and how that's resolved through the banking system. And the other, the other variable, too, is there's the non-banking banks, the, the Quicken loans. Um, you know, I, don't, I haven't taken the time to research what they do with their distressed debt. Do they, do they foreclose and then become REO owners, or are they going to sell it off? There's, no press, there's not the same pressure for them to liquidate distressed debt as there would be for a bank because they're not regulated the same way a bank is. So there's a different dynamic there. So it will be different. Um, there will be opportunities. Um, and, you know, again, I just want to make sure everybody understands that this is not a vulture 
move. I mean, some people call us vultures. Oh, we're going to take advantage of that homeowner and take their home away from them. And that's not our model at all. Our model is to try to keep people in their homes. We, Our first line of attack is lost mitigation. Can we work with you? You want to stay in your home? You know, we try to keep them there. And if can't perform or they're unwilling to, we'll probably have to foreclose. And even then, at the foreclosure before the foreclosure auction, we try to do a cash for keys and a deed in lieu and try to exit them out peacefully and give them some money to move. We don't want them angry and being evicted and having the furniture thrown out on the curb. We've never had to do that yet, and we hopefully will never have to do that in the future. But, you know, there's opportunities for that, not only from a distressed debt standpoint, but from a relocation standpoint. So, you know, what markets uh, would you be looking at if you wanted to own rentals today or, or ne- even in the first quarter? Where are those displaced homeowners going to go? What opportunities are there? What opportunities are in the the unfortunately failed Airbnb business where people have bought five or ten homes and now they can't get, get those rented out and they have to liquidate them at a discount? So there's all kinds of opportunities from this that we need to look at as real estate investors and see what fits best for us and uh, both for our moral compasses and for our, our, our pocketbook. I'll be real interested to see, you mentioned the Airbnb. I'll be real interesting to see what ends up playing out with the hotel industry and, you know, Airbnbs. I've had a number of buddies that were doing this Airbnb arbitrage model and, you know, had to bounce out of that. And then others that, like you said, had acquired them and they're not getting near, you know, the, the occupancy that they need for it to make sense and have now moved those to rentals or just tried selling them, you know. And, and a, what, what I find really interesting, too, is, I mean, we're in a lot of ways, we're still very much in a seller's market, which is kind of weird, you know, given, given yeah. what we're at. And so, you know, I think... Um, it, like you said, it'll be real interesting to see what, what happens. And I think it'll be important, you know, to just continue your capital raise efforts, continue, you know, figuring out what your model is, what your structure is and how you want to, to play, um, you know, in this industry as, as things begin to, to settle and shake out a little bit. So very good insight. Yeah. Very. Yeah, a couple of just side notes on that. I mean, I just read an article, I, maybe it was in Missouri, somewhere in the Midwest, that a company bought a, um uh, old uh, three-story hotel, uh, like a Daisy or whatever, and they're converting it to apartments, right? So there's a repurposing going on. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, Amazon is, is talking to the, one of the largest mall owners to start occupying the old Sears and and J.C. Penney spaces for warehousing because they're running out of warehousing. So we have these dynamic shifts going on, and it's repurposing. What happens with the office buildings that nobody's occupying? I don't know yet, but there's an opportunity there possibly. You know, maybe self storage. I don't know. Of course, it's expensive per square foot there. So yeah, all kinds of dynamics. So one thing that I do in the morning is I spend an hour. I bought an Android tablet and I just read the news. I read the real estate news. I kind of just digest as much information both on a, on a, on a worldwide and, and, and national economy level to give me any ideas or insights into where I'm going with, with my businesses. So information, especially this day and age, the information age is great. You can, you can learn so much and read so much and get so much information on the Internet. And I encourage everybody to, you know, spend time at some point in their day and digest, you know, as much information as they can um, that helps them achieve their goals. 
So, so Bob, this has been very, uh, uh, very educational, uh, very, very valuable. Lots of, lots of nuggets there that you've shared with us. Um, why don't you pass along, like, what are some of the things that you're looking for or how people can get a hold of you or, you know, potentially even work with you? Like, what would you like to impart with everybody? Um, if you want to get a hold of me, my email address is bob at notablecapital.com, N-O-T-A-B-L-E-C-A-P-I-T-A-L.com. Uh, feel free to reach out to me. Um, you know, I'm not here pitching. We do have a private equity fund that um, takes on both accredited and non-accredited investors. And, you know, there's lots of people who want to get in buy notes and do their own note thing, and I, I completely understand and agree with that. But, you know, one thing we do say is that if you're going to invest your capital into one or two notes you're, and those one or two notes go south and you have to foreclose, then your cash flow starts to die off. If you invest in a, in a fund such as ours or any other where you're spreading your risk amongst multiple assets, then you may not get as high of a return on your investment, but you get a much more stable return. So that's something to think about. Um, and I'll be on, uh, you know, your presentation uh, next month. Um, be happy to answer questions there. Um, I, I'm not really doing any JVs anymore just because there's not enough product out there to substantiate it. So if you know, uh, go to my Amazon store and buy some pet supplies. <laughs> you know, if you have a pet, go there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show, Bob. We're, we're looking forward to having you at the virtual convention and uh, we appreciate all your insights. It's, like Aaron says, great stuff. Yeah, thanks. And hopefully next year it won't be virtual. I really do have to say, even though travel's kind of a pain in the butt in general anyway before the virus, but I really miss just talking to people and shaking hands and face-to-face -face stuff. It's it's so important, especially in the note business. So hopefully this time next year we'll be doing face-to-face. -face. So we, we have secured a venue uh, February 19 and 20, in Anaheim, we'll, we'll, we'll be going back to Anaheim, California, February 19 and 20. Uh, we hope that, that we'll be able to have that. So we, we, we did ink an agreement with the hotel. We're going to start promoting that, but we'll be hosting the summit. So we'll see, you know, how things shake up and, you know, what social distancing and what's required and what our capacity is. But, you know, that that's what we have, you know, in person slated next. So we're We'll see, right? <laughs> but thanks again, Bob. Really yeah, that was a, I just wanted to say that was the last live conference I attended was the Anaheim one this past year, just before the virus hit. And um, I mean, I don't mean to uh, to, to be a, a shill here, but it was one of the better conferences I've been to over the years because you 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 provide education and very little pitching, and that's all good, especially for newbies. So. Yeah, if it's live, uh, I'll come back, and I hope the listeners consider going as well if you can make it. We appreciate the, the feedback, and we, we, we respect you and what you're doing, and so we appreciate you sharing your story and your experience with everybody too. So thanks again. Very welcome. You're welcome. All right, thank you. Thanks, guys. Take care, everyone. Till next time. Mm -hmm.